series of lessons. The psalmist does so in every line. Tonight we look at Psalm 119, beginning with the paragraph that begins with verse 145. And as we have mentioned often, we are reminded again that this is an acrostic psalm with 22 paragraphs of eight verses each. 22 paragraphs because there were 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet and each paragraph represents one of those letters and each verse within each paragraph begins with that particular letter of that Hebrew alphabet. And so tonight, as we draw near to a conclusion of this beautiful psalm, we look at verses 145 through 152. And in this 145th verse, the psalmist writes, I cry out with my whole heart, hear me, O Lord, I will keep your statutes. The key phrase in this beautiful verse, I believe, is the phrase, my whole heart, my whole heart. How important it is that we understand from our study of the Word of God that God is concerned about the heart. He is concerned about whether or not the heart is totally devoted to him. And when we say the heart, we mean the biblical heart being the mind comprised of the intellect, the emotions, and of course the will of man. All of these elements comprise the the biblical heart. And God wants it all. That is, he wants all of our heart. He demands it. But as we have also often said, he deserves it. He deserves it. And certainly we will understand and appreciate the fact that he deserves it if we properly understand the God whom we serve. The God who has given us so much in terms of physical creation and the beauties that surround us at every season of the year. But the God who has given us so much more beauty in the spiritual creation that he has made possible through His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, where in Him all things are new. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new, as Paul wrote in the Second Corinthian epistle, where there is joy that is unspeakable, where there is peace that surpasses all understanding, where every spiritual blessing is to be found, Ephesians 1, 3. All of that is ours if we are in Christ today. The psalmist was not in Christ as we have the opportunity and the blessing and the privilege to be in Christ. But he was a follower of God under the covenant under which he lived. And in that covenant as well as this, and in the covenant that preceded the Mosaic covenant, the patriarchal age, God has never changed in what he demands from his followers. He wants the whole heart, not a divided heart. One of the minor prophets, Hosea, makes us aware of that in Hosea 10 and verse 2, where concerning God's people at that time, the prophet wrote by inspiration, their heart is divided. Now they are held guilty. He will break down their pillars. He will ruin their sacred pillars. Their heart was divided. There were those who were seeking to serve God and claim to serve God, while at the same time, erecting idols of stone and wood. God will not accept 
a divided heart. He has always required wholehearted service. Under the law, remember what Jesus said the greatest commandment was? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Matthew 22, verse 37. The second commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. And here in this verse, the psalmist is offering prayer to the Father from the heart with faith and with fervency. And also, the psalmist understands his obligation, as we see from this verse, to keep the commandments of God if he expects God to hear and to answer his prayer. Listen to it again. I cry out with my whole heart, hear me, O Lord, I will keep your statutes. There's an understanding that if if he expects God to hear his prayer, he's going to have to be in covenant relationship with God and maintain that covenant relationship by a faithful walk with God. We're reminded by John in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 22 that we sustain that same relationship to God today under the new covenant. That is a relationship where obedience is required if indeed God is going to hear our prayer. Back under the old law, that was true. Proverbs 28, 9 says, He who turns uh, away his ear, from, uh, his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. He who turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is a what? Is an abomination. Therefore, there needs to be that faithful walk with God in order for the privilege of prayer to be ours. A precious privilege it is. Listen to what John writes about it in 1 John 3. And verse 22, and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. That's equivalent to what the psalmist is expressing here. Hear my cry, O Lord. Hear me, O Lord. I will keep your statutes. John says, if we ask from him, we can expect to receive in accordance with his will because we do his commandments. We do those things that are pleasing in his sight. A few chapters later, in 1 John 5, verses 14 and 15, listen to what John writes. Now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. If we're living in accordance with his will and if we pray in accordance with his will, God will answer in accordance with his will and in complete harmony with what is best for us. What a wonderful reassurance that is. What a blessed promise that is from God the Father. David, if David be the author of the psalm, understood that if he cried out with his whole heart, And that if he was a keeper of the commandments of God, that he had the assurance that God would hear him. We have that same assurance today. And then in the next verse, in verse 146, he continues, I cry out to you, save me and I will keep your testimonies. We've noted before that there have been various expressions in this beautiful psalm that indicate tribulation trial, difficulty, oppression that 
were characteristic of the writer of the psalm. If David is the writer, then David was under oppression, and we know that there were many times when he was, and that there were many tribulations and sorrows that, that David endured. There were those who sought his life on more than one occasion, beginning with King Saul, the very jealous king of the first uh, of the United Kingdom, the first king of the United Kingdom who sought to kill David. And there were others, his own son Absalom, and many others who sought to destroy David's life. And so there was trouble. But in that trouble and in that trial, he cried out to God, assuring God that he would continue to keep his testimonies. And so it is a prayer of faith. It is a prayer of fervency. But notice that it is a prayer of faith and fervency from one who is faithful, one who is a follower of God. And we say that to say this, in no way is this an endorsement of the sinner's prayer concept of salvation. Because here, the praying psalmist is already in covenant relationship with the Father. He already enjoys the privilege of prayer as a result of that relationship. And we need to appreciate, as we have already said, that if we are to enjoy that privilege, and we desperately need that privilege, that privilege of prayer, then we need to be in that covenant relationship. But we do not obtain that relationship through prayer. Prayer is a consequence, a favorable consequence of having obtained that relationship. It's one of the great blessings that flows from having obtained that saved relationship. But one doesn't obtain that relationship with God and Christ initially through prayer. Tragically, as so many contend, is the case today. It is a relationship that is obtained by obedient faith, by a response to what God through the New Testament, through the words of Jesus, tells us to do. Believe that Jesus is the Christ. Repent of our sins. Confess him to be the Christ. And then to be buried with him in baptism for the remission of sins. That is the way that we obtain the salvation that gives us the privilege of prayer to God. David didn't live under that same covenant, but he had been obedient to God under the terms that were applicable to him in that covenant relationship. He had entered into that covenant relationship. He was in that covenant, and therefore he could cry out, Save me, and I will keep your testimonies. Salvation in every dispensation has always involved both the divine and the human side. Always. God has his part and man has his. And the principle, as we have often stated, though the particulars have changed through time with the passing dispensations of time, the principle has never changed. Salvation is obtained by faith faith, obedient faith, in response to God's part, which is God's grace. God's favor, which has bestowed upon us, given to us, by His mercy and love and grace, the plan to which we are to be obedient. Remember Titus 2, 11, beginning, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, but what? Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. And 
living soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age brings with it the blessed privilege of prayer with the full assurance that as we pray in accordance with his will, he hears and will answer. And so the psalmist obviously understood the importance of maintaining that relationship with God so that he could continue to cry out with his whole heart and to have the assurance that the God of heaven would hear him and would answer. How fervent was he in his prayer life? Verse 147 gives us further indication of how fervent he was in his prayer life. Listen to it. I rise before the dawning of the morning and cry for help. I hope for your word. Remember these words? Ere you left your room this morning, did you think to pray? I know we've sung that song here, I believe. Ere you left your room this morning, did you think to pray? Couldn't help but think of those words when I read this verse. I rise before the dawning of the morning and cry for help. I hope in your word. Because those lyrics from that hymn, from one of our hymns, reminds us of the importance of prayer at all times. And here the psalmist says he rises early to pray. There's another expression in Psalm 55, verse 17, that reads, Evening and morning and at noon, I will pray. I believe this very morning we sang the hymn that has those words in it. Morning, noon, and evening, I will pray. I will pray. And so the psalmist says that he would rise before the dawn and cry for help and hope in your word. There was something else I thought about when I read these words, and that was the example I've mentioned before of the late Franklin Camp, who learned that the late Gus Nichols was studying five hours a day, getting up early in the morning and studying five hours. And Brother Camp concluded, if Brother Nichols needs to study, uh, if he studies five hours, I need to study six. <laughs> he was just a humble man. And so he began the, the process of going to his study early before dawn and studying. Do you think any praying went on during that time too? Oh, of course it did. It was a period of study that was punctuated by fervent and faithful prayer on the part of Brother Camp. And look at the fruits that came from all that study. And how much good continues to be done, although he's gone on to his reward, as a result of the fervency with which he approached his study of the Word of God and his prayer, obviously, to the God of heaven. And the psalmist here also says, I hope in your word. I hope in your word. And that's where our hope is placed, isn't it? Our hope is in the word. Our hope is in the gospel of Christ, in the pure, unadulterated, singular gospel of Christ. There is no other. Our hope is not in to, be, to be in the creeds of men, not in the traditions of men, not in the perversions of the gospel that are proliferated in our society today, but in the pure simple gospel of Christ. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Paul wrote, the gospel of Christ. It, singularly, 
is the singular power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Hope is one of the great seven ones mentioned in Ephesians 4, verses 4 through 6. We live in hope of eternal life, Paul reminds us in Titus 1 and verse 2. In Colossians 1.27, he writes, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And in Romans 8 and verse 24, the Apostle Paul there writes that we are saved by hope. Is he saying we're saved by hope alone? No, but he is saying that our hope is an integral part of our salvation. We must not lose that hope. We must not lose that hope. And then in verse 148, the psalmist continues, My eyes are awake through the night watches that I may meditate on your word. Again, here, through the night watches, before the night watches, the psalmist would awake to meditate on God's word. What we have in these verses in this section is a strong, strong emphasis on the power of prayer that the psalmist felt so keenly. And when he speaks of the night watches, he's speaking of, under the Old Testament, three of them, from 6 to 10, 10 to 2, and 2 to 6. And then later, under the New Testament period, through the Roman influence, there were four night watches, 6 to 9, 9 to 12, 12 to 3, and 3 to 6. Those were the four watches throughout the night under the Roman influence in New Testament time. And so when the psalmist says through the night watches, he's talking about throughout the night there would be times when he would awaken before a particular watch of the night and meditate upon the Word of God. What he emphasizes here is something we do not dare miss, and that is the eagerness that he felt to study the Word of God. How eager are we to study that Word, to hear that Word, to read that word. Psalm 119, 149, then he writes, hear my voice according to your loving kindness. O Lord, revive me according to your justice. Revive me according to your justice. Hear my voice according to what? According to my righteousness. Hear my voice according to what I've done that that earns me the right to have you hear my voice? No. No. There's not enough we can do that would earn us the right for God to have to hear us. It is always by His mercy. It is always according to His loving kindness. And that is a recognition here that the psalmist has of the loving kindness of God as the basis for his hearing the prayers of His people. It was not from the petitioner's merit that God would hear and answer, but it would be according to God's mercy. It would be according to His goodness that He hears us and that He answers our prayers. And here also in this verse is an expression of the psalmist's confidence in the power of that word, the power of that word to revive him. Revive me according to your justice. Where is that justice found? How do we learn of that justice? How do we know of that justice? We know of it through his word. Revive me according to your justice. Revive me, in other words, according to your word. And that's an expression that is found elsewhere specifically 
written by the psalmist. You know, it's tragic indeed that the vast majority of those who have lived, who are living, and who will live, will never come to know and have not come to know the revival that awaits them in the Word of God. That it, it stands ready to revive. And yet they'll never know it. They will never know it because they'll be looking for revival in all the wrong places. They'll be looking for life as they view life in all the wrong places. And it's right here. Waiting to revive. Waiting to revive that precious soul that has wandered and needs to come home. Waiting to revive the soul that has never begun his or her journey with God and Christ. But can be renewed. Revived. All things, as we said earlier, can be made new. A new creature, a new creation in Christ. That's what awaits the alien sinner who has never come to know God in Christ, that's what awaits, but it awaits through the Word. It's a revival that can only come through the Word. It cannot come through any experience. It cannot come through any better felt than told experience, through some subjective experience. It can only come through the revealed Word of God to which we must be and must continue to be obedient if we're to know that kind of revival that the psalmist here understood and prayed for during a time of obvious difficulty in his life. Because you see in the next verse we get another indication that he was in some peril from those who were out to get him Notice 150, they draw near who follow after wickedness. They are far from your law. They draw near, that is, they draw near to me, he's saying. They are drawing near to me. The psalmist had enemies who were in hot pursuit of him. And then he gives the reason. Here's why they are in pursuit of me. They are far from your law. That's true today, isn't it? Are the righteous after you, if you're righteous today? Do you have to be concerned about the righteous overtaking you and destroying you? Well, of course not. The righteous appreciate the righteous. The righteous promote the righteous. But the unrighteous pursue the righteous with the intent to destroy. And that's what the psalmist is expressing here. The whole problem in today's world is people who are far from God's law, isn't it? If everyone were near to God's law, if everyone were obedient to God's law, oh, what a world, what a wonderful world it would be. There's an old song to that effect. (laughs) But a wonderful world indeed it would be if the vast majority of those were not far from God's law as they are. But here's something reassuring in the next line. In the next statement, he says, You are near, O Lord. My enemies are near, but he quickly adds, So are you, Lord. 
You are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are truth. You see, we may have enemies who are near to us. We may have those who would destroy us if they could, but as long as we are in covenant relationship with God, then he is near. And then he adds, and all your commandments are truth. How do we know he's near? Through his commandments, through his revealed truth that assures us that he is near to those who draw near to him. Yes, David's enemies were near, but so was the Lord. And that was the most reassuring truth. Listen to the words of a previous psalm, Psalm 145, 18 and 19. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He also will hear their cry and save them. What a reassuring statement. Again, saying that if we are following God, if we are near to him, having obeyed him, then he will be near to us. What did James say? Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. The prophet Isaiah put it this way. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. And notice the psalmist says, all your commandments are truth. All your commandments are truth. There are many today who want to take what they like and and leave the rest. Pick and choose. Cafeteria, cafeteria style religion. But all his commandments are truth. We're to rightly divide that truth, obviously, and to distinguish what truth has application to us, and this, the new covenant. We're not under that former covenant, but nonetheless, all his commandments are truth. We cannot pick and choose. We take it all. And finally, in verse 152, he writes, Concerning your testimonies, I have known of old that you have founded them forever. What a statement. What a reassuring statement indeed. Concerning your testimonies, your word in other words, I have known of old that you have founded them forever. I have known of old that you have founded them forever. Truth is absolute and unchanging. And the psalmist expresses here the fact that he knew this from his very first introduction to it. And that brings to mind a question, when should we first introduce our children to the truth. Cradle roll. (laughs) Cradle roll. In other words, at the earliest opportunity, in the home, in the cradle roll class, and from cradle to grave, we should be teaching that God's word is inspired, unchanging, absolute, and that the words of the New Testament will judge us in the last day. Remember what Paul wrote to Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.15, and that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. 
Let us never forget and let us teach to our children and to any others who will allow us to do so that concerning his testimonies, they are founded forever. They are absolute truth. And so tonight, when I tell you that according to those testimonies, in order to be pleasing to God, in order to become a follower of Christ, you must believe of all of your heart that Jesus is the Christ. That is truth that will never change for as long as time stands because we're in the final dispensation of time. This is the last covenant. There will be no other. And in this final covenant, belief in Christ is absolutely essential. John eight twenty four. But repentance is also equally essential. Luke thirteen three, and again at verse five, repent or perish. Confession of Jesus as the Christ is also essential. Romans ten nine and ten, Matthew ten thirty two and thirty three, and yes, baptism, a burial in water for the remission of sins, where the blood of Jesus is applied, is essential now. It will be tomorrow. It will be for as long as time stands, because it is an essential part of the new covenant, the final step of faith that puts one into Christ. Galatians 3, 27. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. I'm in my coat, but how did I get in this coat? I had to put it on. If you're in Christ, you have to put him on to be in Christ. And Paul says in Galatians 3.27, baptism is the final act of obedience that puts you into Christ. If you haven't done those things tonight, that word is founded. It is sure. It is steadfast. And it will not change. Nor will the condition of pardon for the wayward child And that condition of pardon for the one who has done those things we've just outlined but has no longer been faithful to the Lord and needs to repent publicly and restore one's influence and one's precious soul to the Lord. That second law of pardon, as it is often called from Scripture, is repentance and public confession of public sin. I have sinned. Pray with me and for me. That's what one needs to do who has been away and who desires to come home. And believe me, and believe this, the God of heaven desires to have you come home. And the angels await to rejoice over one precious soul that repents versus the 99 who need no repentance. That's how precious your soul is to the God of heaven. How precious is it to you? As we stand to sing, will you come?